Hello everyone, I am Mariah Parsons. I'm your host. If you are new to Learn to Listen, welcome. And if you are a regular listener, thank you. Learn to Listen is a mental health and wellness podcast designed to encourage vulnerability in storytelling and to empower through empathy. This is a special recording from an in-person event with the Orr Fellowship. Our guest speaker is Allison Earnhardt Allen, a licensed social worker in the state of Massachusetts and co-founder of Earnhardt Singer Therapy Group. If you recognize her voice, that's because she's been a repeat guest on Learn to Listen, so you can check out those previous episodes if they interest you. This conversation is moderated by the amazing Anna Van Geem and Danny Cuevas, two of my wonderful friends and teammates on the OR DEI team, as well as myself. We chat through how to be intentional when addressing mental health so we don't minimize the experiences of other people around us, as well as the differences between mental health and mental illness, where and how to find value in our own lives, how to define your boundaries and then share those boundaries with important figures in our lives, as well as many more amazing topics. We hope you'll enjoy. Hey everybody, thanks so much for coming to this event today in mental health conversation with a special guest today, Allison here, um, and we'll be facilitating as well. But Allison, if you wanna introduce yourself to everybody. Yes. Hello, everyone, virtually. Uh, For starters, I'm in Boston right now, and we are getting ready for the Arctic blast that is going to be coming through. Uh, But I'm very excited to be here today. I run a practice in Brookline, Massachusetts, and the practice focuses on the mental health of competitive athletes in the greater Boston area. So I've been a clinician for about 10 years. I did a lot of my training in college counseling centers. I worked in um, community mental health for a good chunk of time. Um, And so the population I work with now tends to be mostly college age, emerging adult uh, population and in competitive athletes. Um, So Mariah and I actually were connected this summer because uh, both of us were working with an organization organization called Athletes for Hope. And we were doing panel discussions with athletes and uh, my business partner, Hannah and I, um, for a series called Therapy 101. And so we had the opportunity to talk a lot about what therapy is and how it can be of support to athletes. Um, So what I think is, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, because although my specialty is working with athletes, I definitely think there are some really interesting parallels between the athlete community and the young adult, new professional uh, community as well. So I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for being here. (laughs) So um, just to get started, I think like one of the things that I often think about Um, and just reflect on is like how much more like the conversation has opened up around mental health um, and just the different, uh, like the different ways it shows up for different people. Um, And I always wonder like where that line is between something that's just like a fad or like a trend, a hot topic, and like how we can make sure that we are doing our best to talk about it in a way um, that is, positive like in a good way so that we're not just like um kind of like reducing it down for people um, Mm -hmm. that have like various diagnoses yeah no I think this is a this is a really great question that I think um we can see kind of at large and then uh zoom in and see it happen in smaller communities like the athlete community um as well so I think what's fascinating right now is that mental health is definitely this hot topic and um I think there can be a bit of a concern that's emerging that it is becoming fad-ish, right? So um, what is it, like you were saying, how do we strike the balance between recognizing the fact that it's important to talk about this while also honoring the fact that other folks are really struggling with um, clinical mental health issues? So what's exciting is that as a country, we're seeing 
mental health conversations being normalized. And as we normalize mental health, what we're doing is we're helping break down the stigma around mental health. So people are becoming more and more comfortable talking about um, mental health in their personal lives or in their communities and that kind of a thing. So in my work, the athlete community, what we see is a lot of professional athletes are coming out and they're talking about their mental health. Uh, but what's really fascinating about all of this is that we're talking about mental health, but we're not really getting super clear about the difference between mental health and mental illness. So if some mental health is a, like, is um, kind of your emotional well-being, it's, it's a state of being, right? And these are kinds of things um, external factors can impact, right? So if you have a breakup with your partner, or if you're going through some things at home, or um, let's say, you know, you're just, you're having a really bad day and things just suck, like that's going to impact your mental health right? Your, your mood is kind of going to fluctuate. A mental illness is a, is a chronic circumstance for somebody. It's diagnostic. So it's going to be like chronic anxiety, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, these kinds of things. So I think what, what we're watching happen, it's, it's a double-edged sword because the conversation around mental health is, is opening up. And this is very exciting for us to be talking about, but at the same time, we don't have the clarity around the difference between mental health and mental illness. Um, so I think, you know, I was talking to an athlete a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about how their team and their coach are, you know, really aware of mental health and they have these conversations and this is really great. But my client has, you know, chronic anxiety, significant, you know, she's, um, you know, just, yeah, really, really struggles with anxiety. And so she was reflecting on this idea of like, oh, wow, you know, they're kind of talking about this in a pretty like loose and inconsequential way. And they're not necessarily honoring the fact that there are real people that are really struggling with this. And what we know about mental illness is that a lot of it is invisible and a lot of it is silent. And so oftentimes when people are kind of getting picked up with a hot topic of mental health, um, the folks that are really struggling with mental illness are being, you know, kind of marginalized and, um, you know, just feeling unseen and, un and misunderstood. I guess I'll pause yeah. and kind of check in with how that landed. I was talking a lot, so I'll, I'll, I'll pause there and see how that landed. Um, Yes. Yeah. I think as we talk through, I think it's so wonderful for us to be able to sit down and speak with someone like yourself, Allison, who is an expert, who is able to kind of walk through those um, differences between mental health and mental illness. And I think that helps us just contextualize different conversations. And like Anna had said in her address of the question is like, how do we strike a balance between the two? And I know you brought up the example of your um the athlete that you work with and i think for us being in the context taking your expertise and applying it to where we are in our lives with um with being young professionals i see like direct parallels between you know like if you are in the workforce and your coach equivalent or your manager equivalent um if there is conversations around company culture and the day-to-day -day and uh, mental health within your organization. I think that like, even just as you were speaking, I was like trying to reflect in my own personal life where it's like, okay, where are the differences? Where, where do they lie? Where can I improve? Where, um, where are all these different things? And so I think the distinction between those two is, is very helpful. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a really good point because like, let's say you have, I mean, company culture is like a really great, great way to frame it. So, you know, let's say you have, you know, two people, one with uh, a chronic 
mental illness and somebody who um, is mentally stable, uh, but all of us are affected, our mental health, all of us are affected by mental health. So, you know, just by being a human, that's, you know, we, we have feelings. So, um, you know, you have somebody that's, let's say, you know, mentally stable, and we have somebody that's struggling with mental illness. When you have a company culture, right, that culture can kind of fluctuate as it does, right? And, and when you have healthy dynamics, you know, things are you know, going up and down. And so the the person that's mentally sound and stable, you know, who will have, you know, bad days and good days and that kind of a thing will be able to be more flexible and adaptable to the environment when you have, but if you have somebody who's struggling with a mood disorder um, or PTSD or substance use or something like that, that's going to be harder to adapt to. It's going to be harder to move along with. Um, and sometimes what's what, what can be really isolating about that experience is like, you're like, okay, well, I know, you know, Joe was having a bad day last week, like I was, but now I'm watching him and he's totally, you know, boss said, okay, we're going to fix these couple of things. And now look at him, like he's doing great. And I'm still feeling like garbage. Right. So all of a sudden it becomes kind of, um, uh, almost exacerbates the, the mood, um, dysregulation when you watch kind of that happen. Yeah, for sure. I think too, as we all three were talking about this event and we wanted to make sure that, um, you know, this is the first of hopefully many. And um, we were talking about just how the area of mental health and identity and DEI can sometimes be difficult because we're never going to have all the answers. We're never going to know, there's never going to be perfect solution, right? And I think that's what, when I think about the differences between mental health and mental illness is there, we can't strive for per perfection, right? So I wanna emphasize that because I know I've had conversations with the fellows that I'm looking at in the room towards, we can't strive for perfection. Um, and I think a lot of us in the OR Fellowship tend to do so. <laughs> and so I wanna use kind of that to pivot off into um, another question for you, Allison, of, you know, there's in, when we're all in school, um, no matter what age, that is a big core identifier of who we are as a person and where we find value. Um, so as we're now, you know, one or two years out of college at this point, and we're starting to break away from that identity being lodged in um, education, where, how can we start to approach the conversation between where we find value? Is it in the workplace? Um, is it outside of the workplace? How, how can we kind of find that barrier between the two so that, you know, it can kind of protect against our mental well-being? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think it, that's, that's a big, it's a big question. It's an important question. Um, and as you were talking, I was kind of thinking about, um, like you, you kind of asked two questions, uh, and I, and I wanted to be like, well, yes, answer both of them. So, so you, you know, that's how we figure it out. Like you ask these questions. So I think, um, as you're figuring out, you know, your two questions were, you know, do we value, what do we value ourselves at the workplace? Do we value ourselves outside the workplace? What's beautiful about transitional periods, they can be very confusing and dysregulating. You know, when we leave college, we are leaving behind an identity as a student, like you mentioned, right? But we're also opening into something new. And when we find ourselves in these moments of transition, it's actually a really lovely time for us to set into some re-evaluation and go in and kind of check in with yourself and begin to explore and identify, huh, you know, what, what do I want? What do I like, right? Is this major that I just spent four years and billions of dollars on actually in alignment with my value system? It's okay <laughs> if it's not, okay, everybody, it's okay. If I was like right there, I'd be looking at you. Listen, let me tell you, I got like, I graduated with like two majors, a million different minors. I had no idea what the frick I was doing. And then I went to grad school twice because I still didn't know what I was doing, right? Like, you know, it's, it's, it really is these moments where it's so important to take the chaos of transition 
and go in and ask yourself the big, hard questions. Like, is what I am doing in alignment with my value system, my priorities, my abilities? And if the answers to that are no, then we have an opportunity to pivot. And I want to acknowledge the pivot is scary. I want to acknowledge this process is scary. It's, it, it, and it's also exciting. It's also exciting. And so as you kind of figure out, as you're, as you're kind of coming into your professional life, what's happening is, is that each day you're being given an opportunity to check in with yourself around if this is working for you. And I think there is a culture around, well, you know, I just invested in this four years. So this is what I have to do. This is what I'm going to do. And the invitation I think in these moments is actually to take those narratives and deconstruct them and remind yourself this is what you get to do. This is what I'm choosing to do. And if you, find yourself in a place where you're not actually choosing it, then that is not in alignment with your value system. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Anna, Danny, do you guys have any like thoughts around like what that, how that resonates with you? Either of you What's make, what it makes me think about, like, I think a lot of people become self-conscious whenever they do make a pivot. If that's, abandoning their major and it's like oh now I have to do another year and how are people going to look at me then or um you know I'm not doing well at this one role in my company I'm going to make the switch but it still carries some embarrassment like how do you stay confident and like grounded during periods of transition like that it's a great that's such a great question oh my goodness because the thing is is that confidence is actually rooted in authenticity Right. And I, you know, Mariah and I had a chat about confidence and identity, and we can talk more about identity in a minute. But, but when we are, when we are acting in our truth, when we are acting in authenticity, and both of those, by the way, are found in the alignment that I was just, that I was just talking about, when we're making decisions from that place, no one gets to tell us we're wrong. No, no one gets to say that's not for you or you should have done this, or we're asking you to do this, right? If you are making a decision that you know is in alignment with your value system, that's the best decision. Anna, would you have any thoughts? I just love what you said about like, that you can check in with yourself every day. You know, like it doesn't have to be like big picture. Okay, I'm gonna have my 90 day check-in and my one year check-in, but you can check in more periodically than that. Like, yeah, I like that. That resonated a lot for me. Yes. Yeah. That's super strong. I think too, as well as we like Danny, your point around like a major, I know specifically, I felt that going like to med school was my dream for the longest time and then actually saw what it was like. And I was like, that's not for me. And so like, even now, some days like with my boss, right. I'm like, I forget that it's a year and a half ago. I was so, so anxious and nervous about starting a new industry. And that plays into imposter syndrome, right? Which I know we've touched upon before and I know we're going to touch upon it. But I think that's what really resonates with me as well is like sometimes it's easy to get caught up in things um, and forget like where we started. But there's also like a really wonderful point to be able to like look back for me now a year and a half and be like you know what like now I've, I know so much more about um just like having done that pivot what has sat well with me where you know areas that I want to change um yeah it's it's really interesting stuff yeah and I think you know going off that and kind of maybe developing my answer a little bit to um Danny's question like I think when we're when we're making these kinds of decisions, it's it's a, a really cool hybrid of external information and internal information, right? And so, Mariah, your story reminded me of what. So, when I was a freshman at uh, Lemoyne College, which was my undergrad, I wanted to be a marine biologist. 
I don't know what marine biologist studies in Syracuse, New York. I, I mean, I really <laughs> don't know what's happening there, but alas, there I was. And I was taking biology and, um, you know, we had like our whatever six week check-in with our advisor, whatever. And I had A's in every class except for biology. I had a D. And my advisor said to me, he said, Allison, D is for disaster. You're going to need to drop the class. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, how am I going to be a marine biologist if I don't have? And he's like, we're going to have to look at the fact you're not going to be a marine biologist. <laughs> you know? So there was some external feedback, you know, but, but, you know, thank God, I, I, you know, that wasn't, that was not in alignment for me, right? Like I liked dolphins and like going on boats like that, you know, that's like where, I okay. <laughs> okay. These are vacation interests, not professional development. Okay. And so, you know, you get this, you get a cool, you get a, you know, use your external environment to help you with the, with the internal check-in. If you're getting external feedback, right, whether it be feedback that, you know, might be some constructive criticism or just straight up criticism, you know, go in and check. And it's like, Ooh, actually like do my, does my skill set match the job description? Right. Maybe it doesn't, you know what? This is not in alignment for me right now. Um, and, and that's like the important caveat that I think it's really important to remember. This is not in alignment for me right now. It doesn't mean that I couldn't have gone back to school four years later to have studied biology and become a marine biologist. It just wasn't in alignment for me at 18. It just wasn't. So, um, I, Danny, I hope that answers your question um, completely. I felt like it was a big one. No, yeah, it does. Okay. I would say so. Okay. Or maybe, okay, you know, maybe a follow-up to that. Love so it. Let's saying, go. This is a fireside chat, everybody. <laughs> fireside chat. Um, finding, um, you know, what's valuable to you, you said, is, is based in, like, authenticity of who you are, what drives you. Um, and that's really hard to do when there's a million things like pulling you in different directions. That's your job, your school, your family, your partner, um, your community. Uh, it's, it's just so many different things. Like everybody's setting some sort of expectation on you and it's, it's impossible to please everybody. Um, so with that, I guess I'm trying to figure out which way I want to go here. There's two ways. Like, how do you really drill down and find out what drives you? And then once you do find that, how do you set boundaries and protect that and really make sure yeah. you can keep moving in that direction? Yeah, that's that's so lovely. Um, and I know we wanted to talk about boundaries as well. So this is like, I think, a great a great way to enter into that. So um First of all, I want to normalize the experience that you're talking about where it's like your, your age group is, you said it feels like we're being pulled in all these you know different directions. Your age group is being pulled in all of those directions. It feels that way because it's actually happening and you are kind of growing into adulthood, whatever that means, right? You're, you're growing into the next phase of life where you're supposed to be an adult at a time where our culture has really valued hustle culture, like really, I mean, really valued this. And we have really lost sight of what it means to slow down. Now, when people are hustling, do you think they're thinking too much about anything other than the hustle? It's hard. It's hard there, you know, I, I don't know anybody who's hustling and thinking about if that's an alignment for them, like where, how has that happened? Maybe if you're a unicorn, but other than that, I don't think so. <laughs> right. So what we're, what the invitation is, is to actually go rogue. It's to go rogue and it's to actually find solitude. Now, I don't know what that means for you people, like each person, right? Like this is going to look very different, but it is going to require silence. It's going to require the turning down of the, of the volume of, of your life. 
And that's going to be really hard because it's counter to all the messaging that we're being given right now. Yeah, I find a lot of power in that of turning down the volume. And I know for me <laughs> trying to approach like, how do we regulate the external um, forces like pulling us in different directions? I try and like whenever I can be really aware of like the dialogue that I'm telling myself of like, if I catch myself in like, oh my God, I have to do this. Like I like, this is on my list. This is on my list, whatever. Trying to like flip, like ask myself and be like, do I have to do this? Like, do I get to do this? And like, also I started yoga recently. So shout out to Sarah Kolzak, um, a fellow or fellow. Yes. Um, because she poses that question in yoga. And so like, I think those little moments that we can find where we shift how we approach things like that might be a more tolerable like way to maybe tone down that volume. Like I'm trying to think like tactically um, Mm -hmm. how I've tried to apply that strategy of like, okay, how, when I'm feeling in the chaos of things, like how am I, what, what questions am I asking myself of like, okay, like does this need to get done tonight or can I just like go to bed and like nothing is going to happen tomorrow. Right. Like, I don't know if that resonates with, you too. Yeah, okay. Um, just like being able to like really measure what you can really do in a day, what you can accomplish, what you have the energy to do. It's just yeah, definitely important. I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think that you know goes into this this concept of, of boundaries, right? So, um, yeah, Mariah, I like this. I like this piece about like tactically, like logistically. I mean, this is great. You know, we're talking right now kind of in theory and like, this is, this is great to hear. Um, but you know, I want you to walk away from this and be like, yeah, that's cool. And also this is how I'm going to try it tomorrow. Right. And so, um, one of the, one of the ways, the, like this easiest ways to, to, to turn down the volume and to establish a boundary are you guys ready for this? I think it might blow your mind. I don't know. It blew my mind when I read this and I was like, wait, um, I'm trying to think of who it was one of two books that, that gave this example. It was either essentialism or the ruthless elimination of hurry. I can't remember where I heard it was like one of those. So shout out to either or both of those. Both of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is when a text message like right now, if you heard that ding, that was an email. <laughs> right? Might've been my last thought. Alignment. Talk about alignment. Okay. Boom. That example just came yeah. through right now. I could have had a moment where I broke eye contact with you guys or broke my speech, which I guess kind of, I did. And I could have looked, I could have looked at what that email was, but I made an active choice not to, because I am not logistically or emotionally available to attend to the email that just came through, right? So text message. The next time you get a text message tonight, when you leave this, I'm sure you'll have text messages on your phone. Pull it out and look at them and ask yourself, am I available to respond to this text? We have all kinds of cultural narratives that say, you must do this immediately. There is urgency behind all of this. If you don't do this, no one's going to like you. They're going to think that you're blowing them off, that you're ghosting them, blah, 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 right? All of it. All of it. So when we talk about solitude, when we talk about turning down the volume, this is what we're talking about. Stop. Don't reply to the text. Ask yourself, am I available for this? Logistically, like, do I have time to do this? Maybe, maybe. Now, if you do, then it's like, am I emotionally available for this? Right? No, mom, I'm not willing to have a 20 minute conversation with you about how dad snores at night. I'm not available for that. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I think that's one tactile way of uh, using a boundary, using an emotional, psychological boundary to protect you yourself. 
I think as you're talking, I think it's so interesting. I know like if I get a phone call, I'm way more likely to like pause, ask myself, okay, like do I have the time to answer this call? Am I emotionally available for this call? But when that text comes in, like you said, like there's that urgency, I feel the need to respond to it immediately. And so I think as we look at like where, where society is going, talking about how prevalent like hustle culture is in our generation, mm-hmm. like it makes for me, like it resonates. It makes a lot of sense. Cause I know like I'm way better about like asking myself about the phone call versus like the text conversation. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, hmm. Could just be me also. No, I, no, I, I, also, I think I do too. I do that too. And I think maybe like, well, I'm kind of like, well, why, you know, what's there for that. Right. And I think like, I mean, yeah, ooh, we could like write a whole paper on that, but I guess I'm thinking about the, <laughs> yikes. I'm thinking about how like there's something more direct and intimate about a phone call, right? Like if we pick that up, we actually are going to have to be available for that call. There can't be like a ton of background noise that's going on, right? Like we have to feel like we're in a space where, you know, depending on who it is, right, that, you know, we can actually talk to them. Um, but with a text message, I mean, you can be in the bathroom, right? And like, no one's going to know. And there's no intimacy in that, right? Like, it's just kind of like, yeah, let's hang out or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, so there's, I guess my point in all of that is that the stakes are higher in a phone call and the stakes are a whole lot lower in a text message. So it makes sense. I think that um, we are, it's easier to ask ourselves. Um But the thing about these things, right, is that it takes an incredible amount of practice because what we're asking is a rewiring of the brain. So we're going to, no one's going to turn down the volume for us. If anything, these things are going to get louder. The older that we get, the more messaging that comes out, right? So what we're, what our challenge is, is to practice this, make this a daily practice, right, of turning down the volume, setting up the boundaries, And it's not going to be easy at first, right? Like we're going to make lots and lots of mistakes. And we might be doing like really good with not responding to the text messages for like a week. And then like we slip again and that's okay. That's process. But um, these are things that we will have to put in practice on a daily moment to moment, even um, rhythm to, to rewire the way that we've been taught. I have a follow-up question on that. So uh, just going, okay, let's go. So <laughs> I, I, I have tried to practice uh, setting boundaries. Like people are like, hey, let's go out. And I just don't have the energy. I have to like really listen to myself and I'm like, hey, I'm really sorry, but can't make it. Or the same thing with the text call. Like I just don't want to answer. But often in those situations, mm-hmm. I feel like I still have to offer an explanation. Yeah. So in those situations, what's the best way to deal with that? I mean, that's a very focused question and it probably depends on situation, friendship, the relationship, but any tips there? Yeah, no. So, I mean, I love that. And, and I do encourage every single person here to read essentialism because it taught, it does talk about this. So it's, it's, it's the power of a no, right? So, um, when, when somebody extends an invitation and you've done the hard work. So like, first of all, give yourself credit for being able to like do the assessment that you didn't actually want to go to the thing. So like, that's, I mean, that's like saying a quick, yes, we find ourselves in saying quick yeses all the time, especially in the workplace. When we receive something from a higher up, we do the quick yes. Cause we're trying to climb that ladder, right? Like quick yeses are slippery slopes, friends. They are so slippery. And that's like really, when you find yourself in that pattern, you really want to figure out a way to stop. Um, and, and, and that's what we're, and that's what we're going to talk about right now. And so, um, what we want to think about is making an informed no, right? So if you are able to kind of receive the invitation and do that assessment of like, yeah, I don't actually want to do this. So good on you for being able to do that. Now, the next step is to say no. And there are are very like professional and like 
lovely ways to, to do this that can actually be respected rather than looked down upon or judged or whatever. So how that is, is you actually thank the person for the invitation, you know, thank you so much. Uh, for thinking of me, I'm I'm not going to be able to make it tonight. Um, but it, you know, I really appreciate you. I really appreciate you thinking of me. You do not owe anybody an explanation. You don't. <laughs> you just don't. You just don't. And if it's like, oh, come on, you know, you know, and just be like, I, I, you know what, I can't tonight, you know, but let's circle back tomorrow or, you know, um, I, whatever feels like a comfortable speech pattern or whatever for you, but you, you, you can hold that, that no. Now, what happens is over time, when you do that, your employer or your, you know, coworkers or your friends take a look at how you are serving yourself well. And all of a sudden they're like, you can say no. <laughs> I want to do that. Like that looks like a good idea. And essentialism talks a lot about this, about how saying an informed, respectful no becomes respectable, right? And all of a sudden people are going to want to get on board with that. Because when you say no, guess what you're doing? You're honoring yourself and you're also honoring them. Right, because if you were to go out when you didn't want to, who's who's the, who's that benefit? They don't want to be around you if you're in a bad mood or you're acting weird. You know, you don't want to be around you when you're like that either. So what I'm gathering from this is we're all going to start a book club and read Essentialism. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're going to guide us through it, Allison. Yeah. It's so good. It's such a good book. Yeah. It's so good. And it actually, it's it, it's an ideal text, I think, for your group because it does focus, um, its main focus is in kind of corporate America. Um, so I had a little trouble connecting to it because I'm like, this means nothing to me, but um, the, the theories do mean a lot to me. So, um, but, but it is <laughs> it is very much a corporate text um, and was written by like a CEO of some, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So he'd like lived that life and was like, absolutely not. Yeah. All the power to him. Yeah. Um, yes. So, <laughs> as we're talking about like corporate, um, the corporate world, the corporate in corporate industry, um, and I know we've we've chatted about how to find value and establish those boundaries, how to say no. Um, I think one of the things that comes to my mind as I think through all of those things, especially in the workplace and in our stage of life, is how do we approach a difficult conversation with someone who is higher up. And I think we've been dancing around this a little bit and we've answered it um, in a couple of different areas, but I want to specifically maybe dive into that a little bit deeper of like, say you need to talk to a boss about specifically being overworked or not finding uh, or not being given enough work to feel like your given responsibility or like value mm -hmm. uh, by your company. Can we kind of dive into that? Because I think that would, as I know, like I think through or fellowship as a whole, I think it's a very relatable topic. Mm -hmm. So what would you, what would you kind of say? Um, can you walk us through maybe an approach you would recommend? Yeah. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, it's just, it's simply actually braiding together what we've already talked about. And by that, I mean, it's like, we wanna find ourselves in a place of confidence. So when we go up to have this conversation with somebody that's higher up, we wanna be standing in a stance of confidence. Where does confidence come from? Well, it comes from alignment, right? And we, we, and we talked about what, we don't need to review that. So another, 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 I guess, grounding point in confidence is, you know, alignment, you know, authenticity, all this, but it's also, reminding yourself that you are the expert of your own experience, right? So it doesn't matter how high up somebody is. They are not you. 
They are not your experience. You're having a unique experience within their company that you are speaking to, right? So um, that I think is kind of the frame that you you want to find yourself in that in that stance of confidence. No, I, I do know what I'm talking about. I am the expert of my experience. And so when you go in to have this conversation, language really matters, right? So when you go to kind of pitch your idea, know what you want to say. Be super clear on what it is that you're arguing for, what it is that you're advocating for. Again, like saying no, self-advocacy is respectable. It is respectable. You want to talk about a raise? Well, then you go in there and you say, this is what I would like. And I deserve this because X, Y, and Z, or I deserve this because company B would be willing to offer me this. So what are you going to do company A, right? So you want to go in with a clear sense of what it is that you're asking for. Now, when you are an expert of your own experience, you don't use language that suggests you don't know what you're talking about, right? So you don't go in there and say, I think I deserve a raise. I believe I am working too much. No, I do deserve a raise. I am being given too many tasks. I need a reduction in this work or I am not being challenged. What are your suggestions on how I should solve this problem? You see, so language really, really matters. And you must remind yourself that no one gets to tell you how you're experiencing the situation. You get to tell you. And it doesn't matter if you are bottom of the barrel, you are talking about your experience. Yeah, I think, I think that really resonates with me and it brings up feelings of imposter syndrome of, I think that's one of the things that can nip away at that confidence or that assurance in ourselves of like, we know our experience but we might think like, what are we doing this position? Or like, you know, this person knows so much more than me. It's easy to walk ourselves into that narrative. And I think one of the things that came to mind when you were speaking, Allison, is as like you are an expert on yourself is one of the things that I was fortunate enough to be informed of from a mentor was like, even if someone, and I just want to share with the group is even if like someone is you know, the it person in your industry or at your company, um, or, you know, is the CEO, they've never experienced like the problem that you are currently facing at that current time in this current society with the exact same resources as you are now facing in current day. So like, I know that's a helpful thing for me to remind myself of when I am like in a, when I know a hard conversation is coming my way of, like, how am I going to kind of prevent myself from spiraling into like, oh, I don't know. I think I should do this, but I don't actually like having all those things that you were just speaking to of trying to have that comedy in your presence in that meeting so that it aids in your confidence as well. Yeah. I love that. That's exactly right. No, that's, I love that. That's spot on. That is spot on. Um, I was... Let's see, you had said something. Um, yeah, I guess I was thinking a little bit about imposter syndrome and how, like that's like, what is imposter syndrome except for fear that's talking to you in your head, right? Like that's what, that's what imposter syndrome is. It's this little fear that's telling you, you aren't good at this. You aren't developed enough, like whatever. I think one of the important things to think about when we hear imposter syndrome is that we are to like, very just like kindly remind it that we are only 25 years old and we don't actually know everything and we're not supposed to, you know? So if you don't know something, that's okay. You're brand new with it. How old are you? 20, how old are you guys? 23? Like seriously. 23. Yeah. Like 23 to 24. Yeah. I mean, I like, 
you don't you don't know everything like like like, 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 like hard truth hey guys guess what you actually don't know everything <laughs> and, and, and like and, and here's here's the thing you actually aren't supposed to yet right no and like the thing is, is that's fear, right? Fear is saying, well, they know this, so you should know that, right? But 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 you're not. Like, you know, and I, I tell interns this all the time, where it's like, you are an intern, and the expectation is that you don't know. That's it. The expectation is you are here to learn. When you're in an entry-level position in a company, it is expected that you are there to learn. That's the nature of an entry-level position, right? But imposter syndrome like gets in there and suggests otherwise. But it's so important to say, thank you so much for letting me know that you're here, imposter syndrome, but I'm not gonna listen to you because you are lying to me. You are lying to me. I'm not supposed to know everything. And who was it? Like, I mean, of my, like many minors that I was talking about, I was um, a philosophy minor. And now this is embarrassing because I have like no idea who said this, but a old philosopher once said, no, this is really bad. I don't remember this. The wisest man will admit that they don't know everything. And he said it's so much better than that, but like, you guys get my point. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear Lord, please. Don't tell me. I don't it's a perfect that. point to me. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. The point is, the point is, it's completely relevant here. The wisest person is going to recognize their limits of knowledge. And then guess what they do? They ask a question. They ask a question. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. I was going to add, I think being able to take away the energy of like just asking, asking a question. Um, I know it like that always grounds me of just being like trying to remind and it goes back to like the narrative we're telling ourselves but just trying to ground ourselves and be like you know what like does it it can just you can choose to have it not be something that is a big deal to like ask a question and not know everything and that's one of the other things that I try and focus on when I'm like what is what is going to go on in this conversation is nice to have one of those things where it's like you know what I'm not expected to know everything and like have that reminder so I appreciate you sharing that yeah. with the group yeah um just a statement more like just like one thing I've found uh, that's been particularly helpful when combating like imposter mm-hmm. syndrome is just giving yourself grace I think some of us something that all a lot of us have realized is like one year of work experience actually changes the game completely like at least me being a second year and like her like me being in the second year of me working at Resultant, like I feel way more confident in my role than I did in the beginning. And so now I looking at people who have even like two or three years of experience above me, I think that's a big step ahead. And I, I take that into account when I'm beating myself up about like, yeah. uh, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. Like, it's fine. We're starting out. We're learning. Right. Um, so exactly. definitely what you, what you all have been saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love Grace. I love that so much. so as we kind of talked about the importance of like asking questions I think we'd love to open it up for like a little bit of a Q&A um if you project loudly I think Allison might be able to hear you kind of from where you are otherwise I can make sure to repeat the question um so that we can yeah just get get, keep the conversation going yeah what's up (laughs) yeah so how do we um can she hear me can you hear me yeah, I think yeah. Let's go with it, and then I and I'll ask if I if I miss something. Keep going. Okay. Okay, cool. So, how do we separate our personal lives and our mental health from the professional world? Like, for me, I've been struggling with like the world being set on fire basically lately with all the everything that's going on and all the tragedies and everything. And I'm really struggling. With, I think it is separating boundaries from my personal life and my mental health. Yeah. Thank you so much for, um, like sharing that, that part of you and, um, bringing that to our attention, because I imagine there are plenty of other people in the room that are thinking and feeling the same way. So I really appreciate, um, I, yeah, I really appreciate you raising that, that question. So I think that, um, 
this, like we were saying about kind of turning down the volume, um, this is going to take practice. I think that we are given lots of messaging around um, how there isn't a boundary between the two of them. Like, especially when we have technologies that are available to us all the time. Like when we're at home, we're working. And when we're at work, we're dealing with stuff from home or the outside world or whatever, right? So, you know, let's say right now, one of like you're being activated around like, um, I don't know, stuff that's in the news, just, you know, like, for example, let's just say that, right? So you know that right now you're being really activated by what's happening, what's coming across the news feeds. So one of the ways that I, um, I'm going to, I'm going to use this word, but I don't mean it in a joking way. Like I actually mean it. Like one of the ways that I think can be really helpful is, um, when you walk through the door of your workplace, or for those of you who are virtual, the when you open up your computer, I want you to imagine yourself moving through a portal. And I'm not like science fiction portal, but I mean like something kind of magical happens where you are establishing a wall between what gets to be here and what doesn't get to be here. So when you walk in through your door into your office, that is the portal. That means when you are in that office or when you are in that building, you are not checking your newsfeed. You are not replying to text messages that are about your girlfriend trying to break into your office or like apartment or whatever, right? Like you're not attending to the things that are outside of this building, Okay. And then the same goes for home. So, you know, we have bosses that expect us. It's fascinating. Nobody appreciates the five o'clock hour anymore. I like really don't understand this. Now, one of the things that I had to do when I started my own business was I had to have hard and fast rules around when I was going to reply to emails. Clients think you're available on our call 24 seven. I'm not, I'm not. So five o'clock after five, like on evenings that I work late, I'll reply to an email, but on evenings that I don't, it's a hard five o'clock. That's my portal. I am not replying to a work email when I'm at my house. I'm not doing it. And you hold that thick boundary. So when you go home, work doesn't go with you. When you walk into the building, outside life doesn't go with you. And how you hold that is really, it's, that's a personal curated decision, right? So maybe it's, you're in the building and you're not scrolling through Instagram. You're not checking your news feeds. You're not replying to certain phone calls or text messages on your lunch break. I'm not sure exactly what it would look like for you, but you're the curator of your portal experience, everybody. You should have a shirt or something that says that. I feel like that's like a cool thing. Somebody write that. <laughs> that was good. I just think that, you know, I made a note. <laughs> <laughs> all jokes aside, um, you're talking about something really serious and really important. And um, I, I think that uh, a visual like that can be super helpful. And it's one that needs to be practiced. I mean, truly every, every single day. And it's not going to be easy. Like, I mean, when I had to set those hard and fast rules around myself, guess what? My business partner wasn't respecting them. Isn't that funny? And I said, you're a therapist. Stop texting me after five o'clock about our freaking business. Like I'm not doing this with you. And she's like, oh, right. And so now we have accountability partners, right? And so you guys are a close group. Perhaps you find yourself an accountability partner, you know, and, and you check in with one another. How's that portal experience going for you? Are you able to hold that boundary? If not, what's up? How can I be supportive to you? And, and things like that. Cause it's, 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 it's hard. It's really freaking hard. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'm so excited to try that like tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not going well. And so I I was on the phone with my mom today because I was in tears for two hours while I was in the office. Like, so just cannot wait to set that portal Nope, tomorrow. yep, you got it. Separate that balance from the, from the yeah. work. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I love that. Really like tangible, I think. Mm -hmm. That's always one thing I struggle with. It's like if something's not tangible, it's hard for me. So I love mm -hmm. that that was like kind of tangible. Thing that mm -hmm. I, can, I can practice. Um, what other questions? Sophie? Hi, Allison. So, okay, so my question relates to something that you shared in the beginning around 
like authenticity and value alignment and being able to come from a solid ground and place within yourself when you're kind of making life decisions or in a traditional period. And I wanted to ask a question because I felt like when I heard that, to me, it reminded me so much of like trusting your intuition and like having a strong relationship, like tapping into that. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you around like, what can you do or what advice do you have when you're in a place where perhaps you are dealing with a mental illness and that is just really scrambled your intuition and your relationship with your intuition? Yeah. There's maybe just this, this space where you feel like you need to make decisions, but then you're so afraid or because you don't know how to trust your intuition at this point in time or even your values seem to have changed changed you feel like you don't know how to move forward and you're kind of stuck in this loop with this lens of like that mental illness kind of coloring how you think you to today Ooh, I love that <laughs> yeah. I, I love that Sophie because um that's something that I I I think about a lot. And so I guess perhaps I'll reflect um, out to you, like my, my personal experience with that, because um, so this is, I'm abandoning the professional a little bit um, and just going with a personal experience, but it's rooted in the professional experience, right? Like it's in there somewhere. Um, but I think um, I'm an, I'm an incredibly intuitive person and I also struggle with a mental illness. So I find myself at combat with this a, a fair amount. And I wish I could say that like when you get older, it gets better, but I, I just think you get better at talking to it and you get better at managing it. Um, so again, like all the things it's going to take practice, but um, the fir first things first, it, it, it's, getting clear about the voices of what is the voice of intuition and what is the voice of the mental illness. Mental illness is going to tell you lies. It's just not true. These things aren't true. They are dark. They are scary. They are oppressive. If you are thinking something about a decision or if you are trying to make a pivot and you're being met with fear, oppressive thoughts and feelings, this is mental illness, this is not intuition. Intuition sounds something like, trust me. It sounds something like, no, I'm sure. Or it sounds something like, this is so clear to me. It sounds something like openness, freedom. This is the opposite of oppressive, oppression the opposite. You feel opportunity, not oppression. Mental illness is the oppression, not the opportunity. So I think taking like a couple steps back from that, I just want to say like, this takes so much time because mental illness is so tricky. And once it feels like you might have learned something to kind of quiet it, it's going to try to adapt and, and sound a little bit different. And so then you have to check back in again and say, is this intuition or is this my mental illness? And a way that I think can be super helpful is a, a tool called externalization. And so you like, if you want to kind of make figures of this, like, like, you know, like little figurines or perhaps they have like different names or you know things like this just as long and, and this is not a joke like just as long as you're not working with somebody who has like schizophrenia or you know multiple personality or something like that like if you're working with somebody who's intact it's okay to do externalization activities where you are taking out the pieces of yourself and calling them different names so just as long as that's not a mental illness that you're struggling with this is a helpful tool if that is something you're struggling with please do not do this. So um, I think that if you can kind of identify the voice of intuition and maybe name her and then identify the voice of the mental illness and name it, then what you have is these two different characters that you then get to have a relationship with and you get to say yes to this one and no to this one.
It's a big question, a lofty answer. I don't know, but it just I appreciate it. Yeah, they're hard. That's it's speak up, so I don't think. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, thank you. I appreciate that, and I appreciate you taking off your professional hat a little bit to bring in some more colors. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah, no, it's hard. I just, I'm alongside you in that. And I imagine others are as well. Um, Peyton? <laughs> yes. Um, hi, I hope you can hear me. Um, I can hear you, yep. Okay, perfect. Um, so I was particularly excited to hear at the beginning um, when you said that one of your areas of expertise is working with athletes. Um, and so wanted to ask a question like stemming from that due to my personal experience, but I would be fairly confident to say that it's a similar experience that would resonate with everybody in this room based on their primary passion or like a driving passion in their life, like something that they love doing, sports, music, theater, like the list goes on, like mm -hmm. anything. Um, but so, uh, okay, so, I, yeah, I was a college athlete, and so um, as one of the people that you probably work with, like, you come from, you know, in your whole life, like, half of your life was school, the other half was sports, and that was, like, you know, one of the central pieces of identity was, like, I am a this is what I'm going to do, and so at this transition point that we're all in, like, starting our careers, um, you know, that is a huge part that we kind of left behind in addition to the student identity yeah. um, from college was like your athlete identity, your musician identity, your you know, XYZ that everybody's like when they're driving like hobby, passion, whatever you want to call it, is kind of can be left behind at this transition time. Yeah. So another part of the adjustment, like in addition to, you know, the actual day-to-day, -day, like, at your job and everything we touched on, um, I kind of wanted to bring up that in particular because losing that part of your identity, like, outside of the professional environment um, is actually, like, a, it's been a very difficult transition for me. Yeah. And I'm sure people, too, there were athletes or musicians, something like that. So, um, you know, because now, like, the schedule is different and, like, before we have tons of commitments like afterward, like oftentimes almost like you know, every day, at least every other day, like it's really hard to work in time to actually then, you know, do these other things that are central to your, to your identity that you like doing. Like, I don't even know the last time I go, and that makes me really sad sometimes. Yeah. Um, it, so just, that's kind of like a lot of pieces, but just if you had any wisdom to share for all of us, um, on like how to not only like adapt because obviously that is going to change like you can't be in the same stage of life forever and like it was like a percentage like that's going to change over time so like how do you adapt and like accept that changing percentage but also like maintain doing what you love yeah uh, I mean thank thank you for bringing that up and like you said I'm sure that that question really resonates <clears throat> with everyone um in the room with some part of their identity um and yeah in working with athletes this is such a tricky piece because of kind of what you were saying in terms of the scheduling because you are like that is your life like when you're a student athlete at the collegiate level like that is your life you're a student and you're an athlete and there is very small margins to be anything else um, so I think first and foremost, Peyton, it was right, Peyton. Um, yeah, first, first and foremost, I, I would encourage you and anyone else who that comment resonated with to, to get therapeutic support, because what you're talking about is a loss. You're talking about a loss, a loss of a significant part of your identity. And when we don't appropriately mourn our losses, strange things can, can happen at strange times that we have little to no control over. 
Now, by loss, I don't mean that you can't golf again or you can't pick up the saxophone again. I don't, I don't mean that at all. But what I mean is to be the elite performing athlete that you were, that, that part of your life is over. And that brings up a ton of pain, sadness, maybe joy at times, maybe relief at times, right? Like it's a whole complicated mixture of emotional response to something like that. And I think it's important to recognize the gravity of that. And I know for a fact, not enough people seek therapeutic supports after making that transition. And they're carrying the wounds of that or that loss into their 30s, 40s, 50s. Now it's a very, because so your question is like, you know, how do we respond to that? How do we interact with that? What do we do? And I, I wish I could say, you know, here's the script, go forth and good luck, you know, uh, you've got this. Um, you know, really the opposite is true. This is a very personal experience. And this is something I learned um, through our panel discussions at Athletes for Hope, because we had the opportunity to talk with various athletes, coaches, different stages of their athlete careers. And what became really clear from those conversations is that people responded to these transitions very differently. Um, perhaps they left their sport due to graduation. Perhaps they left for, um, because of injury. Because perhaps they left because they, they, you know, something traumatic happened, right? Like, you know, we enter and leave these things in um, very different ways. So how we respond to them can be very different. So for example, golf for you and that part of your identity now that might be something that you, you said, it's sad not to do that. Okay. That sadness is an indicator that golf wants to be a part of your life somehow. That sadness is telling you, right, we've got to welcome that back in to some degree, but, and, and that's your project right now that your project right now is to get super curious and creative around how to enter, how to bring golf back in. And it might not be, you know, that you get to play every weekend. It might be, oh, you know, maybe I watched off here, I played here, you know, whatever you feel, you know, you get to fill in the blanks. But for some people, they want nothing to do with their sport anymore. When I, when I stop swimming, I, I, to this day, cannot smell chlorine without having like some visceral reaction. Like, I just like, no, you know, <sighs> so, you know, <laughs> I want nothing to do with that does not want to be a part of my identity anymore at all. Like I want, I don't want to identify with that. I don't want to be a, a swimmer, but over time, what happened was I was like, no, okay. I'm not a swimmer anymore, but I am an athlete and I love this athletic mind and I love this athletic body. And this is how I'm going to use it. Right. But it took like a real period of like mourning kind of the loss of what I thought a swimming career was going to be and recognizing what it was. Um, so I guess there's no easy, simple, short way to answer your question, Peyton, because I think it's so big. And I think it's one that should be paid attention to. And, and the, that's the kind of work that you get to do in therapy. Um, and obviously that's what I love to, that's what I love to do. That's what I do. So, um, yeah, so thank you for, for raising that. And that, yeah, I apologize. Time doesn't allow for us to talk about it too much longer, but um, definitely keep wondering, keep thinking about that. It's important thing. It's important that it's good that you are aware that that's happening inside of you, and your awareness is the invitation to go in and explore it. And don't shut it down. Get super curious about what it's wanting to share with you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So good. Um, I think we're coming up on time here. So if we could all just thank Allison uh, for her time on her Thursday night. Um, so thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being so open and asking questions and yeah, being willing to go there with me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Allison. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you all for listening and dedicating some of your time to these conversations and being an external part of that conversation. I hope you take away with each episode 
maybe some new perspectives and some ways to reflect about how what we talk about pertains to your life and your own interests and goals.